0: by Nick Stapleton from Scam Interceptors uh, who was at the game uh, at the weekend between Manchester City and Inter Milan uh, aka the Champions League final Um, and Nick, I saw online as a lot of Manchester City supporters did, had a series of issues uh, with the way in which the event was organised. So there's a pre, there's a game and there's a post. We're going to talk about the pre and the post uh, in amongst all of this. So, So Nick, First and foremost, just tell us what your plan was with reference to getting to uh, the Atatürk in the first place and where and how did it go wrong?
1: Sure. So thanks for having me on. Um, We followed the instructions we were provided by UEFA almost to the letter. So they had given us this transport hub in a place called Yenikapi, which is down in the sort of southwest part of uh, Sultanahmet, just outside of central Istanbul. And we went for lunch around the corner from there, uh, me, a lot of people I watch City with who are part of the East London Sporters Club, my dad, one of his mates. And we stayed there until three o'clock. And we thought plenty of time, kickoff's not until ten, you know, seven hours to get to, to, get to a football match that's 26 kilometres away should be should be ample time. Um, so we walked from there at about three and we got to where the actual buses were because we stopped along the way to buy some water and stuff. We probably got there, I think, at about uh, just before four o'clock. Yeah, and when we arrived where at Yenikapi, where the, the buses were, there was no facilities at all, really, in where the queue for the actual buses was. And they'd said that in their literature to us they said, Oh, you know, um, come prepared because there won't be um, toilets You'll have to go into the, the what they call the Champions Festival, which was alongside it, which means going through scanners and queuing up for a whole different thing, which obviously none of us particularly wanted to do. So we stood in this queue, it was a big old queue, about 45 minutes, you know, baking heat, no shade, which you know, we expected it, and that's that was you know what we knew was coming um I'd had water that I'd bought and when we got to the front of the key to get on the buses straight away we went through a kind of search checked the passports checked the tickets and either I'm not sure if they were police or whether they were official stewards but basically they wouldn't let us take water on the buses so all this water that we'd people had bought was getting taken off them and either drank or tucked in bins um we get on the buses and they're just like public buses basically not like coaches or anything with toilets And the traffic was that bad that we were on that bus for two hours. So we left at quarter to five and we got to the Ataturk at quarter to seven. And in that time, because it was, bear in mind, it was 26 degrees in Istanbul on Saturday. It was very hot. Um, No water at all. One guy on our bus threw up. uh, And that was obviously just like all over the insides of the bus. And other people, because they were so desperate for the loo, were peeing out the door, peeing out the windows um, because the driver wouldn't stop, basically. And I know other buses, um, one of my friends is in one of the other, the Chilton Sports Club, I think. He uh, forced their driver to pull over on the motorway so they could go to the loo. Anyway, we were lucky with our two hours because I spoke to other people whose journey took three. Um, so we get to the fan zone and straight away we're thinking, OK, water, maybe a beer. like to go to the toilet now, please. So first of all, the toilets were a collection of sort of caravans, like kind of RVs, like what you might see on a sort of caravan site that had um, between sort of five and six either cubicles or urinals inside them. And obviously there was a lot of female fans there and that was the only kind of toilet they could use. So there was massive queues of women waiting for these toilets because there just were nowhere near enough of them. There was 20,000 of us in that fan zone potentially, you know, and I could, from what I saw... I guess there were fifteen or twenty of those caravans. Um, we fortunately could, you know, just go kind of go to the loo by the fence or something like that. But all these, I spoke to one woman who'd waited for an hour and burst into tears because she was so desperate for the toilet. By the time that they got there, um, so we then went to the bar and managed to buy one beer. And as soon as we bought that one beer, they said that's last orders, and this was still three hours before kickoff. Um, so we drank our one beer and went into the ground. And actually, because my dad's 77, I was traveling with him. He wanted to go in very quickly. Some of my friends who were with before stayed behind. So me and my dad went in ahead about half past seven. And at that point, it was actually quite easy to get in the ground. So I think we were quite lucky because from what I understand from people who came just after me, they were queuing for 45 minutes, um, again, just to get through the searches, get into the stadium. But to be honest, when we got into the stadium, it didn't get any better, it got worse. There was... We were in the lower tier, me and my dad, block 333, which is on the extreme left of our end of the the ground, the the low tier, not the the two above. And we had two stalls for our entire lower tier. Now, that lower tier was the vast majority of the 20,000 city fans who attended the game. So I reckon comfortably 15,000 people were in that lower tier. Two stalls selling water. They had four card machines between them for 15,000 people. So you can imagine how that went. I queued for an hour and 45 minutes just to be able to buy some water. And there was no other way to obtain it. There wasn't other stalls. There wasn't, I could see other people who were offering it to be able to be sold. So I stood in this queue, best part of two hours. Other people behind me were there longer. Finally get my water. And by this point, you know, I've been standing in, I've been without water from uh, when I had it taken off me at the bus at four o'clock ish or something like that. So, you know, that's four through to basically half past nine without a drop of water. Um, in 26 degree heat now whichever way you cut it that's dangerous like people will suffer the medical consequences of that if you know if they're not well hydrated when they first get on the bus for example anyway finally get my water get some food go and find my dad now it's like 20 minutes to kick off you know and I've been standing in that queue since half past seven and we managed to drink some water watch the game obviously fantastic experience very very glad we, we got it over the line Amazing to be there to see it with my dad. He's been going since he went to his first game in 1954, um, which was City against Blackpool and Stanley Matthews. Um, and he took me to my first game in 93, um, which was Uwe Rossler's debut against Arsenal, where he got sent off and we were 3-0 down after half an hour. which was a very apt beginning to my time supporting City as a kid. Um, but to get to do that together, obviously, very emotional, kind of incredible thing. Um, we watched the trophy lift and it got to about one because the game finished at midnight and we thought, okay, let's let's go and get on these shuttle buses back again. Now, UEFA had told us, same situation as when we uh, departed for the ground in the first place, there'd be shuttle buses there and they would basically get us onto them, get us back to Yenikapi again. It might take a while because obviously the traffic, et cetera, et cetera, So we get back to the car park from the ground. Now You walk out, you guys know, I'm sure, you walk out the ground, there's a kind of long tarmac path that gets you back to where the car park is. But as soon as you get to the car park itself, it's just gravel and dirt. So any fans who were wheelchair users, as soon as they got out of that slip down from the ground to the car park, just couldn't move. So there was sort of five or six people trying to help wheelchair users across this gravel, which is obviously not friendly to to wheels at all, um, trying to carry them just to get them to where the buses were. So we get down to where the buses are, and there was the sign for Yenikapi. There was no information at all, no people to ask, no one to say, you know, this is what you should expect, this is what is happening now. And all we could see when we got to the signs for Yenikapi were two of those buses that were already completely full of city fans. So I'm thinking about my dad seven weeks out from his hip operation here and how quickly I can get him back to his hotel because also he was absolutely knackered by this point. It was, you That's know, done. Yeah, they, it's a very long, long day. Days. They are long days. Yeah, We were probably 12 hours plus 13 hours from when we'd left our hotel that morning at that point. So um, he was knackered. And I took the decision that the best thing we could do because... When you saw these two buses, the two buses were right at the back of the car park and there was all the other buses that were going to the airport and stuff there as well, right? In front of them, they must have let in, I guess, between 100 and 200 taxis. And all of those taxis were in a long line of traffic going all the way down to the motorway and I could see it going down the hill ahead of me. Unbelievably, coming up the other way, up the slip road, were also yet more taxis and private cars and things like that. But this slip road is only wide enough for two cars to pass door to door in various parts. So you had cars coming up this way, crawling past other taxis that were trying to go down the other way. There was no control. There was no one sort of sorting the traffic. So we saw that and we thought, these buses are never going to get out of here. Like this is they're going to be there for hours at the very back of that entire thing. A, there's only two that we can see going to the end of and full and B, they're never going to leave. So what we decided was we'll walk all the way down the road out of the stadium, back to the motorway. And we'll try and find a taxi on the motorway. We'll walk down that road until we see one that hopefully we can get away in. So we walk all the way back down the road. We get to the motorway. The motorway is a car park. It's just in gridlock. But Obviously, there are still people trying to manoeuvre through that gridlock, cars moving about the place like game of Tetris. Pitch black, by the way, because there's no lights once you get beyond the stadium. So I'm sort of walking in front of my dad trying to move our way between all these taxis and cars that are moving around the place. First taxi we saw... And wasn't taken by somebody else who was in an equally desperate situation. And I just want to add, like, when you've had a hip operation, the worst possible thing that can happen is either you get bumped on it or you fall down. Either of those two things can mean you need to go back for more surgery. So I had that in my mind when we were trying to find a car. I was thinking about my dad who was struggling. He did not look like he was having a good time at all. And neither was I. I was genuinely quite scared. We pick our way through. First taxi says 200 euros to take us back to town. It's a 26 kilometer journey, obviously. That's an absolutely ridiculous scam and an obscene amount of money. I don't blame the taxi drivers for wanting to take advantage of a once in a lifetime opportunity, but I mean, that is really taking the mickey. Um, so we carry on down a bit further down the motorway and a bit further and a bit further until we found a place where there was a slip road off to one side that meant they could turn around quickly and not be stuck in that huge line of traffic going back towards the stadium. And we managed to persuade one taxi driver there to do us the journey back to town for a hundred euros. Now, We were luckily in a position to be able to pay that. And at that point, we were so sort of frayed and so freaked out by what was happening that we just agreed to do it just to get out of there. Um, It ended up being a 25-minute journey back to the hotel that we paid 100 euros for. Um, So thankfully, made it back, managed to get into the hotel, got him into bed, he went to sleep, and I went back out and managed to find some people in town who also made it back. My other friends who we were with actually ignored UEFA's advice and walked to the metro and got told by various police on the way there that we weren't allowed to use the metro, that it was closed. I just found a way around them, got there, and, of course, it was running absolutely fine. I'd already got all the Intervans out of the stadium easily. Um, So that was the advice we were given. Don't use the metro, use the shuttle buses. But the shuttle buses weren't available to take us home. And those that were, I know people who stuck around in that car park were there till three in the morning. I got a message off one guy who was still trying to get a bus back to the airport at 7 o'clock the following morning. I just, how? How? How is it? How can you ever be so bad at this? They're doing so, year on year on year
0: on year. I've got Dan Austin with me, uh, and Dan. When it was at the Atatürk, when it, when we were doing all the stuff last year, I always looked where is it next year, and I thought, oh mm. god, that'll end up being a nightmare. And. Just from the point of view, Dan, and this is the frustration here, is that there was everything that did go on last year. You'd have thought that you were would you have put the best foot, foot forward. And when all this was sort of unfolding and the, the images of people, sort of some of them on wheelchairs moving across what's almost like a, a moonscape that was coming out from the City fans on Saturday, I was simultaneously both surprised and not at all surprised, if you know what I mean. I was just thinking they'll have pulled something out the bag here because they won't want it to look awful for them again. And yet, you know, listening to Nick there, it's not obviously as, as as bad because the policing element isn't anywhere near as present or prevalent as last year, but it still just looks dreadful for UEFA.
2: Yeah, I, I would say stupefied looking at it, um, rather than shocked or surprised, um, because the logic the logic is all there. Um, yeah, people people's kind of like so the instinct looking at the stuff might be like, oh well, you know, it wasn't as bad because the the cushion wasn't there or the heavy-handed policing wasn't there or you know, or like the local young adults that were causing problems or whatever. Um, but it's the same fundamental issues causing pretty similar things for people. You know, everything Nick's just described there, sounds and, and looks in the videos and photos and stuff, really quite distressing, first of all. And secondly, li- liable to cause health issues for people. Yeah. Um, and these are people who are simply trying to go to a game of football. And also not only any game of football, but the, the most prestigious game of football that will happen in 2023, the one that most people will watch, the one that most people are interested in. Um, the one that, in the theory, should have the most effort in terms of planning going into it, um, and once again, it clearly hasn't happened. And an awful lot of what, what Nick's just described comes back to the similar things that the you know what I and, and ten thousands of others, uh, tens of thousands of others, have kind of shouted about for for a year: um, a lack of competence on the event organizers' behalf. Um, which is UEFA. So, first of all, they are just not capable of putting these kinds of events on um, for whatever reason, because football matches happen every single week in bigger stadia than this. Like 95,000 <laughs> yes. 95, people go to the New Camp every fortnight and it's fine. Um, or 55,000 go to Anfield or a similar number goes to the Etihad every week and they get in and they get out and there's water and there's toilets. So, why, when the really big one comes up that this organization has at least a year to plan for, can they not do it properly? Um, They've been trying to make Istanbul happen for about three or four years, and because of various things to do with the pandemic, it's got delayed and delayed and delayed. We might say that they've not learned from um, Paris, but they've also not learned from hosting previous events in Istanbul. They obviously had the European Cup date in 2005, and maybe they got away with that a little bit because of the circumstances, but... It was fucking dreadful for people that went, wasn't it really? And people might sort of romanticise, oh, we had to walk miles to get there and all this sort of thing because we're marching across Europe and then we came from 3-0 down and that sort of thing. But if the int- infrastructure was terrible then and it was not being changed, then you as an organising body should think, well, should we look into that or should we try and do something about that or check that they've done anything? And we found as well that between the final year later, 2006 in Paris, they hadn't checked anything to do with infrastructure or the safety of the stadium or, or what are they doing with stewarding at this ground nowadays compared to back then. So they don't sort of follow up on the failures of their own previous events. And also they they had like a bit of a recce four years ago. We we played Chelsea in the Super Cup there. Um, and that went well because the stadium was in the city. It was a, it was not at the Atatürk, it was at the Vodafone Park where Besiktas play, which is right on the port which meant to get into that stadium was really easy. Now, that stadium isn't suitable for the Champions League final because it's not big enough. But somebody, when they're doing the sort of post-event analysis of that, should go, right, we've held two events in our history in Istanbul, and one of them there were various infrastructure problems and one of them there wasn't. So what was the difference? If we do anything again here in the future, how can we try and mitigate the things that happened the first time and make it better like the second time was? And they've clearly not done that either. Again, the what the, the major thing that like the the French Senate report and the, the UEFA Commission report in the end found about um about the, the failures in Paris was that all of the various different bodies involved in the organization of the event did not communicate or cooperate with one another at all. So like the the people that ran the trains in France were doing one thing and didn't tell anyone else and no one asked them. And then the police The different branches of the police had their own idea and UEFA just thought well if we just put something on an app and don't tell anyone they'll all read the app and they'll all follow it and everyone will know and the police will know and all this sort of thing everyone just kind of presumed Again, what Nick is saying there, you know, some of the literature is saying bring your own water. And then they turn up and get told, Oh, you can't bring your own water. <laughs> yeah. And that's just a fucking basic thing. You wouldn't leave a dog without water in that heat for 30 minutes and everyone for five and a half hours, as he was describing. That's a really basic thing. And and what pisses me off about it is the, you know, a lot a lot of we've, we've said this plenty of times when we've talked about the final last year, but it bears repeating again now. A lot of a lot of football fans understandably can complain about being treated like a customer now. Um and when we met with the people who were on the independent panel last year to talk about the one commission by UEFA to talk about what's happened and stuff, I, I quite overtly made the point to them. If you, if you want to treat me like a customer, treat me like a fucking customer then. Let me have access to facilities. If I make a complaint, take it seriously. You know, Value my safety and security and health and things like that. You going to treat me a customer and, and, and have me pay a lot of money? Fine, I'm an idiot. I'll pay a lot of money for the ticket. But then respect me as your customer that's paid that much money and everyone else who's done the same thing to come to your event by putting it on in a way that, that is safe and secure and treats me with respect. And and as as I say, this this might not be as qu- quite as dangerous as what we went through a year ago, but it doesn't matter the kinds of the small that's... differences. The overall thing is the same way. This massive organization that is allegedly non-profit but turns over fucking billions a year Treats people like animals in an inhumane way over and over again, and and keeps getting away with it, and nothing changes. You know that it, it's one of the main reasons that it doesn't shock me was, you know, we got we got various really good reports out of out of the Champions League final last year, and and what happened and where the blame lies is very well understood. And if anyone ever ever tries to blame supporters again, then they're lying because all the stuff was well publicised, and you they know that it's wrong. But no one lost their jobs. Nothing on a practical level actually changed. No politician in France, but also no one at UEFA. So the president is still in charge and was endorsed by the English FA for that role and um, when he was re-elected again in Lisbon behind closed doors a couple of months ago without a, a rival candidate. Uh, the CEO of events, Martin Callan, who was found to have lied both to the French Senate and to his own UEFA-commissioned inquiry and is in charge of putting events on, still does his same job. Everyone below them still does the same job. So they put a few weeks ago... You know this this sort of meander and detail this document out about how they were going to implement the recommendations from their own commission report, but their attitude and the people who actually do these things are the same incompetent liars who don't care about people. So when stuff like this happens, it, it it's not a shock, but but it's still it's still incredible and disgraceful. And as long as as long as those people remain there and the organisation itself doesn't have its power altered in some way. Then the same thing will happen because if they don't face consequences, if they in for example, now two years in a row, or we don't actually really have to fucking do anything because no one loses a job. So we all get the same paycheck, then 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 nothing will actually on a on a real practical level change.
0: The the core part of this, Nick, is as Dan sort of detailed it, there it's if you say disrespect, it almost feels like it's mild. Like it's the most intense form of disrespect I can think of. It's just a complete lack, it's not just it's a complete lack of respect, it's just a complete Actual contempt, I think, for 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 the people who who pay the money to turn up to to watch the football match, who are part of this, and that to me is that's what you've gone through there. That's how you detail it all the way through, over and over and over and over again. It's just displaying utter utter contempt for the people who go and power football.
1: Yeah, and and the thing I find several things that that Dan said there resonate with me. The thing the thing I find most shocking is that since I did that tweet thread on on Saturday night been seen a lot of times. A lot of people sent me their stories of going to the other European finals. And it's not just, you know, what happened to, to, to you guys last year, which was, by the way, orders of magnitude worse than what happened to us on Saturday. Just absolutely hideous and awful. But I've had Rangers fans getting yep. in touch about yep. their Europa League final in Seville. Yep. That Spurs fans getting in touch about the same. I've had people talking about Manchester in 2008. i people talking about the Wembley Euro, uh, Euro Championship finals in 2021. Like, it's pretty much every major event that they've had any touch on as a big final has been a complete disaster on some level or has been dangerous on some level. And what that says to me is that basically they know very well that there's no incentive for them to make our experience in any way acceptable, even humane, because they know that football fans are loyal and will just do anything to go to one of these once-in-a-lifetime experiences. So regardless, or the only thing that would change this is if there was some sort of mass collaboration by fan groups to say, look, we're not going to go to any more of your finals until you give us some absolute bare minimum guarantees of what you're going to provide. Access to water, access to toilet facilities, and access for people who have access issues. So, you know, guarantee that fans who use wheelchairs will be actually be able to get to where they need to go. Like Those should be
0: the absolute fundamentals of running a major yeah, I, event. My problem with this, Nick, is I, I agree with you, but the extent to which I feel like fucking hell, we couldn't all be asking for more. Because, because the extent yeah. of what you've detailed there are the absolute human basics. Yeah. You know the ability to 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 bring water into your body and take water out of your body. And, and Mike, it really feels like it doesn't feel like it's a big ask. And it, the, the no. more you say it, the more it almost feels almost semi comical to me that you're paying. You know, let's be clear about this: hundreds of euros per ticket, and you yep. feel as though you need to say, "Can we have a crumb off your table?" Which includes being able to have a drink and then deal with the ramifications of that, which is to go to the loo. That's it, um, I- and and that becomes like it's a major request.
1: But that's what, what, Dan, but what Dan said there as well about the fact that the, the guy who's the, the boss of event operations at UEFA, he's been in the organisation since 2011, and he's been boss of event operations for the, for the best part of a decade, I think. It was, it was a very, very long time. I think he started in 2013. He's been either in events or logistics, the, the sort of chief exec of that department, for almost all that time, I think. I've never heard a word out of him. When has he ever been accountable for any of this at all? I've never seen any statement. I've never seen any acceptance of responsibility. I've never seen any kind of apology or suggestion that they're going to improve. And like you say, when we're paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds for these tickets or hundreds of euros for these tickets, in what other industry would that ever be acceptable? That you take customers' money and then as soon as you fail them utterly, you just, just wipe your hands of it and never say anything at all. The only reason they've ever been forced to say anything was because of the appalling stuff that happened to you lot last year.
2: Well, Even that, as, as I say, Callan <laughs> spoke publicly once. Um, because they were the organization was legally obligated to by the by the French Senate um, and, and lied through his teeth during it and was never kind of seen or heard from again. Even Seferin, um, in the in his own UEFA commissioned inquiry, only agreed to respond in writing to set questions. Um so if you if you can't engage with yourself in, in effect about, about matters to to do with what happened, then then what kind of fucking public accountability is there? And also i mean we we talked about this a little bit at the the there was an exhibition um case um did which was all photography from the final last year which was was supposed to be and has been in the past about madrid and stuff about the the joy of following your team to a final and then obviously became something else and we we had a conversation in front of a room of people um but a, a a lot of this is is no one resigns anymore in society um, you know, really prominently in the UK with politicians and stuff like that, but all across Europe, um, whether it be government ministers or, or prime ministers and presidents, no one resigns. Um, that's the, that's the same with an organisation like this. But this organisation is in no way democratic, so you, you can't vote Seferin out, you can't vote Martin Callan out, even even if you thought you could get a bit of bit of wind behind you and try and do it. Um, these people just reinforce their own power constantly, and that means that that you end up not getting support from the places that you should get support from. So if you just look at what UEFA is, really, it is a union of national European football associations, so it should just be a coming together of all of them. And between all of these different organisations, everyone decides on things, and it's actually, it's actually fairly... You might not vote for your national head of the but it's actually fairly democratic because it's everyone working together. In practice, it's not that at all. It's some people from sort of quite strange industrial backgrounds who end up being given jobs... Um that are often like unadvertised and stuff like that, um, just because. They I'd love people. to know. So, I'd, I'd love, I'd love to know what David Gill thinks about all of this. He's the vice president.
1: He's the treasurer. You know, he's a former former boss of the FA. He's a former former Man United director. Like, where's he in this? Does he not but, feel the need to step up and say, "Hang on a second, guys, we can't treat people like that"? Well, that, I, I just I find that, it incredible.
2: You know, that's that's what I was going to say. So, you you would hope then that well, first of all, it's strange that this fella who is a, a Slovenian lawyer. So why has he got that job? What, what was he doing before that renders him uh, a viable candidate to be the president of UEFA? There might be something, but I've got no idea what it is because it's never stated. Um, you know, have you been involved in, in you know, really high up level things in sport and stuff like that, Sam? But tell me, let, let us at least understand why this fella decides where we're supposed to go and whether we're safe there or not. And secondly, again, without asking, um, without seemingly speaking to him or anything like that, our own National Football Association when its own citizens were battered by police abroad or are treated like Nick is saying now, um, you know, not giving access to toilets or whatever and, and not being safe at this organization's events, don't do not do anything for us. They don't come and say, well, what happened to you? Tell us about it. And we'll go away and, and some, talk to some people. Or they don't say, well... You know, we actually quite liked you, but we're gonna hold off on endorsing you just for a few weeks or a few months just to see what happens with this inquiry that you've commissioned, because it might turn out that it's actually your fault, in which case we might not think about endorsing you anymore. You just go, oh no, we've we've we, you know, if if we endorse you, you're gonna put um this woman that works for us on the FIFA panel of executives, aren't you? As a UEFA delegate, so sounds like you sort us out, we'll sort you out. And that's what happened. And and again, in this meeting in Lisbon in April, um, I forget the woman's name, but the vice something or other of the FA. It uh, was put on the FIFA board, which is a role that's uh, by no way, but by no means full time, but comes with a few hundred thousand pounds a year um, by all accounts. Um, so because all of these organisations are in no way accountable to people, no one ever has to lose their job. No one ever has to speak publicly to, to, to people, as Nick is saying. No one ever has to be accountable for anything. And that means that, that stuff happens. And there's no one to fight your corner with you. It's just sort of you against them. And we got by far and away the best result that we probably reasonably could by getting all these big, long, written, formal documents saying you've actually saved lives, you know, um, and certainly weren't to blame. But the fact that that's the the best result, you know, eight or nine months later, getting something in black and white that just proves what you already knew anyway. And nothing changes afterwards and something similar happens to a similar group of people yeah, is, is fucking obscene. And the fact that there's no... There's no kind of vehicle by which to go. Can we not? Can we not do something about that then? Can we not get rid of these dangerous people, or can we not force them to abide by these sorts of different things? Is 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 yeah? Is is obscene? Is vulgar? And I find it immensely frustrating that there are people who are, you know, by the way that this thing is is stru- set up and structured, are supposed to represent us
0: and our interest and our safety, who who have actually got no interest or determination to do that whatsoever. Okay. Thank you very much, to Nick Stapleton, for taking the time. Uh, Dan Austin as well. Uh, as Dan said, these people box, each, box themselves off, uh, so we've got to look after each other. This isn't a tribal matter, this. Uh, it's not going to be a tribal matter either. It shouldn't be from this point. Um, it's crystal clear whose interest they act in. Uh, we've just got to act in our collective.